we care a lot about how we are known. Do we not? It matters a lot to us that we are known by others rightly, right? It matters to us that we are not misrepresented. And I don't know how strongly you feel about that, the idea of being known rightly. But for me, just to let you know personally, it bothers me quite a bit to be misrepresented. <clears throat> and the problem isn't as much about someone saying something negative about you or think something negatively about you, even though that also would bother me. I'm sure it would bother all of us. But the, the greater problem is what was said or thought of me is not true. Right? And whatever it is that caused this misunderstanding or misknowing or misidentifying, it really bothers me when I'm misrepresented that way. It's like being told firmly that you said something or did something but you really did it. Or it's being told that you said it with a certain tone and with a certain in intent when you really didn't. This may be something that my wife and I may or may not have dealt with over the years in our marriage. It's something that is really important to us to be made known rightly, right? To be identified correctly. And it's not only important to us that we personally are known rightly, it is also important that those around us are also known rightly, right? We don't want to misrepresent others as well. So we can say that correct identification is something that we care a lot about. And what we see in our text today is it matters to Jesus too that he is known rightly and it is important to him that he is made known rightly to others. And really it matters to us that we know Jesus rightly and that we represent him rightly to others. Our text today, Matthew 16, 13 to 20 is one of the most debated verses of scripture. And we're going to get to what this rock is. You're asking um, but what we really want to focus on, and I think what is more important, is Jesus' question and Peter's response or his confession. We're going to first see how the people viewed Jesus wrongly or incorrectly. And following that, we see Peter, through his confession, seeing Jesus rightly. And lastly, we'll look at how all of this matters, how it impacts our evangelism, and how we can be confident in our proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the main takeaway of today's message actually comes in the form of a question that was Jesus' question to the disciples. Who do you say I am? Or for us would be, who do you say he is? Now, to add a little bit of context to our text today, this dialogue between Jesus and the disciples, I think it's helpful to briefly go over what this district of Caesarea Philippi was at the time. It was formerly named P 
Peneus, after the Greek god Pan, which you may be familiar, was believed to be the god of nature and the wilderness. He was depicted as being half man, half goat. I think it was Pastor Cleet that mentioned centaurs uh, last week, half man, half horse, something like that. He was also closely associated with un, the undomesticated world. He's known for being wild in nature, even for his unrestrained sexuality. Pan in Greek means all or whole. It's where we get the word pantheism. You may be familiar. Simply put, it's right. It's that it's the belief that all is God, or even panentheism, which. Slight distinction, but it means that all is in God. It's pan, it means all or whole. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it is also where we get the word pansexual, which with our little friends being here, it means all things go. And Caesarea Philippi is where the wild pan was worshipped. So it's not too hard to put together what type of worship practices may have been taking place in Caesarea Philippi at the time. It was a pagan cult site where all things go. There's a little bit of uncertainty as to exactly where this encounter would have taken place. There's even some variance in Mark's account and Luke's account. But I think what does matter is somewhere in this general area is where Peter and uh, Jesus and the disciples, including Peter, have this dialogue. And the fact that Caesarea Philippi was a city infested with debaucherous idol worship is noteworthy. And I believe it does add context to Peter's confession, as we will see later. So with that in mind, Caesarea Philippi, idol worship infested region, city, and that's where this is happening. So verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, the, who do people say that the Son of Man is. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So the disciples name three kind of key figures in the Bible. Old and new, really, right? John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah. Now we could spend a lot of time to specifically address each prophet or person and, and how people thought Jesus was that person. But I believe um, overall, overall, what they're getting at is the people thought of Jesus as some sort of prophetic figure. Someone who was possibly commissioned by God, someone of some significance, who had authority. It seemed like he had some powers, right? Performed miracles, feeding the poor, healing the sick, exorcisms. But at the end of the day, just a person. And the disciples actually don't say that the people believe him to be the Messiah. Even though we saw in chapter 9, the blind man, they call out son of David. In chapter 15, the Canaanite woman says son of David. So there were some people that may have thought that he was some kind of Messiah. But the fact that the, the, the um, disciples don't mention they thought he might be the Messiah says to what the general population believed him, who they believe him to be. So at the very best, Jesus is a John the Baptist type figure who was actually well-respected and popular before he died. 
someone that was special, had special things to say, but at the end of the day, a mere mortal. So this is a false view of who Jesus is. And then in contrast to the false view by the people, in verse 16, we see the correct view of Jesus from Peter's response to Jesus' question. Look at 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Back in chapter 14, we actually saw the disciples confess to Jesus, you are, the, truly, you are the son of God. This was after, after Jesus walked on water, remember, saved Peter, who was sinking. So this was not the first time that Peter or any of the apostles confess, make this confession that Jesus is the son of God. But it is still significant that he, Peter makes this confession at this point in Jesus' ministry because we're going to see how it bridges, it functions as a bridge to what Jesus is going to teach his disciples next week in the rest of chapter 16. It was important that Peter and the other disciples believed that Jesus was not just some prophet who could do special things and say some special things, but that he was the Christ. He still is the Christ, the anointed one, the promised Messiah, the son of David. But he is not just some divinely appointed person. He is the son of the living God. He is the son of the living God. So again, Caesarea Philippi being the background, right? This place where people worship idols. They had all sorts of ungodly things. People were worshiping dead, man-made sculptures. And Peter confesses and correctly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the son of the living God, who is to be worshiped, to be revered, and to whom all people must submit and obey. And this view that people had in the times of Jesus regarding him is really no different from how many people today, whether they profess Christ or not, think of Jesus. What's interesting, I'm sure you notice, is there's so much hate and hostility directed towards Jesus' church, his bride, Yet so many people from all different backgrounds and religions actually have great things to say about Jesus or whatever their version of Jesus is. Many people are fond of this version of Jesus. They would say how much there is to learn from Jesus, right? And they would say that only if the people who claim to follow this Jesus would just follow their, their, uh, their teacher's example, that they would be more open to Christianity if more so-called Christ followers would follow this Jesus. But they fit their version of Jesus to what they hope the Messiah to be. The hope of this utopian society that they long for. They make it fit into that Jesus. So they take his words and his works out of context so that it better serves themselves. What people then and today choose not to see is that Jesus is not just some great teacher. 
He wasn't just giving some uh, highly suggested uh, things to, so that people can live individually and collectively to, to flourish. Even though he does care about those things. They ignore the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the son of the living God. As Peter confessed, Jesus is the Christ. We saw last week in 2 Corinthians 4, we must proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. So to present Jesus as just some mere man, a good teacher, a, a, a good religious leader that was, was moral, is not just inaccurate, it is offensive. This so-called, uh, quote gospel that denies Jesus' divinity and his messiahship distorts the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It is another gospel, which means it is a false gospel, and to a person who preaches a distorted view of Jesus, Paul writes, anathema, let him be accursed. So we must all feel the weight of knowing Jesus rightly and presenting him to others rightly. And as we see in verse 17, such knowledge, right knowledge of Jesus is only made known by who? God himself. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Jesus calls Peter Simon Barjona. Barjona would have meant son of Jonah. So Jesus referring to Peter as the son of Jonah is significant because it is in comparison to the knowledge that comes from the Father in heaven. So essentially, Jesus is saying to Peter, your confession, right? This, this um, you're believing that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. This is not something that you were taught by your father or from some rabbi. This is divine revelation that came from God the Father. And for that, for God to reveal such good, right knowledge to you, you are blessed. People can read all sorts of things about Jesus, maybe even read about Jesus in the Bible. As many of you do here, you can faithfully attend Sunday morning services at some church. Midweek Bible studies and prayer meetings and accountability groups. You can serve in all the ministries that the church has to offer. You can memorize scripture and, and catechisms like our, our young friends do weekly. But true knowledge of Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, who spoke this world into existence out of nothing, who created us in his image to glorify himself, and as the God-man who was truly God and truly man, lived the perfect life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved because of our sin, rose from the dead three days later to prove that he was who he said he was. God himself ascended into heaven and is currently seated at the right hand of the Father and promises to come back to judge the living and the dead. We all know that, right? This rightly knowing Jesus is only made possible by God. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. 
through which the scales of the sinner's spiritual blindness are healed. The scales fall off. And that person who truly has repented of their sin, believe in Jesus, the person who truly believes in the full, pure, unadulterated gospel, sees Jesus right away. Now, why does this matter? Why does Peter's confession thousands of years ago, why does this matter to us? There are many reasons. You can think of things right off the bat. But I believe from our text, one of the reasons why right knowledge of Jesus as Christ and the Son of the living God matters is because he has everything to do with our evangelism and building of Jesus' church. Our knowing Jesus rightly impacts our presenting him rightly to others. And what we can draw from the last few verses of our text, as we'll see, is where the confidence in our evangelism comes from. So let's look at verse 18 and 19. This is still Jesus speaking. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of, give you the keys of the kingdom. Excuse me. The kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, what is this rock? When Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, is Jesus referring to Peter? What is this relationship between Peter, Petros, and the rock, Petra? What is the, what is the relationship between Petros and Petra? I think Pascal mentioned Petra, some, someone Petra. I don't know. What is the relationship? Does it refer to Peter's confession? Oh, that maybe perks. Like, oh, yeah, I think it's that. Is Jesus referring to himself? Or is he referring to the rock? Some of you may have heard of site of where the, the temple of Pan was, this big rock. Is he referring to this rock and he's making this statement on this rock? I've heard all these interpretations. But I liked what Sean O'Donnell said in his commentary before he gave his own interpretation. He says, or he writes, quote, whatever I make of this verse, it is clear in, other, in this otherwise ambiguous verse that this verse has something to do with Peter and everything to do with Jesus, end quote. Now, I could be wrong, and I'm going to be to stand corrected, and I don't, but I don't think Pastor Mike lined this up when he was putting together the, the preaching plan. But our, and our friends in the Roman Catholic Church, February 22nd, which is just in a few days, is the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter. So they, they believe... This is the day that Peter first uh, preached uh, his first sermon in Antioch. And it's the day that they commemorate his contributions to the building of the church. And I think more importantly, they recognize his authority over the church. I'm quite, I'm quite confident to say that I do not believe that the Roman Catholic friends' interpretation of Matthew 16 is correct, that it is a proof text that Jesus commissioned Peter as the first pope of the church, as some figure that is infallible, has divine authority, 
and that this was the beginning of a process of apostolic succession. I do not believe this to be right. However, I do believe Jesus is referring to Peter when he says, on this rock. But he's referring to Peter as a representative of the disciples, of the apostles. So he was not giving any special privileges or authority. And Jesus is saying, as he refers to Peter, the rock, that he is going to use him alongside the other apostles to use them mightily to build his church and to advance his kingdom. In Ephesians 1, we do see Paul say regarding the church that is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, but that Christ himself is the cornerstone. So yes, there is something significant to Peter and the apostles and the prophets and how the church was in fact birthed through them, as we read in the book of Acts, and how God did use apostles like Peter and Paul as inspired authors of scripture. So that's something. That is something. But, again, something about Peter, everything about Jesus. Jesus himself is the cornerstone. And he is the solid rock on which the household of God, household of God stands. And it is a house that will withstand rain and wind because Jesus, not Peter, not Paul, not any of the popes, Any other spiritual authority is the head, but Jesus is the head of the church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What is the gates of hell or Hades? Again, a lot of different interpretations. I believe what the gates of hell ultimately represent, it's a metaphor that represents death. And it is in contrast to Jesus, who is the living God. As one commentator put it, again, gates of hell or Hades represents the imprisoning power of death. Death will not be able to imprison and hold the church of the living God. There is a whole lot more to say about verses 18 and 19. But what I believe, and I truly believe this, I believe what is more important and what we can be more sure of, more than what this rock is, is that there is assurance that Jesus' church will prevail and we should be confident to faithfully proclaim the gospel. And I believe there are two reasons through our text we see why we should proclaim the gospel in confidence. And first, kind of went over this just moments ago, and it's because this is not just any church. It's not Peter's church. It's not any of the pastors' church here at Restore. It is Christ's church. So you can debate all you want. What is this rock? But there's really no debating whose church this is. Jesus says, On this rock, I will build my church. And because he is the Christ, the son of the living God, you can be sure that his church will be fully and firmly built according to his perfect plan. 
That's the first reason. The second reason why we should be confident that Jesus' church will prevail is because of the message. Now, while Jesus is speaking to Peter in verse 19, when he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus was not saying that Peter or any of the apostles or the Pope has been given the keys of the kingdom in the sense that they are now able to determine or have some divine authority apart from scripture who is bound or loosed in heaven, right? You may be familiar with the, the image of Peter standing at the pearly gates of heaven, right? He's functioning as a gatekeeper who allows people in or, or prevents them from coming into. That is not who Peter is. As another commentator put it, Jesus was declaring Peter as a steward or a like a sort of a chief administrative officer. So he does have authority, but his authority comes from God's authority. And his authority comes from his word. So what is the keys of the kingdom? It's the gospel. It is the true, full, pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the word of God as it is revealed to us in the scriptures. We are ambassadors for Christ, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. God making his appeal through us. Peter, the apostles, any of these other figures of authority, anyone who claims to follow Christ, exercise their authority according to scripture, his word. So our confidence comes from the gospel message itself. Our confidence comes from the inerrant word of God. And because Christ will build his church, because it's his church, because it is his gospel that brings us to saving knowledge, we can be confident to tell the world who Jesus is and his plan to save the world. Who do you say he is? Friends, brothers and sisters, who do you say he is? So, what is the application for today's message? It's quite simple. Confidently go and tell everyone around you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Proclaim the gospel and make Jesus known rightly. Represent him rightly. Tell the world who he is and who he says he is. Fully God, fully man, who came to save a sinful people who repent of their sins and believe in his saving work on the cross. All of this, which is revealed in the scriptures. Our last verse in our text, verse 20, it says that Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he is or he was the Christ. This was not some suggestion. This was an order from Jesus. An order to say, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. Which seems odd, does it not? Like they have this moment, right? This intimate moment, this grand moment of, of you know, Jesus' plan to build his church. Like, on this rock, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? Talk about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So imagine being Peter, one of the disciples, right? You, they're just like amped up, like ready to go and tell the world that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, keep your mouth shut. Don't say a word. It's odd. I can imagine, what? What do you mean, right? What do you mean? Which maybe goes to show even, we see next week and Peter being a little off about what is what he believes or what is the right way of perceiving this whole plan of Jesus. The reason why Jesus commanded his disciples to not tell others that he was a Christ was because it was not yet the time. We see later, again, through Peter and the apostles and the prophets, the birthing of Christ's church in Acts as the Holy Spirit came. But right now was not that time. Jesus was fully aware, fully aware that there was pressure. The people wanted Jesus to be their version of the Messiah, right? Someone who would free them from Roman oppression, to overthrow the Roman Empire, to be their king. And again, we're going to see this next week. So, you know, please come back next week. But Jesus had not yet taught the disciples that their Christ the son of the living God must suffer, be killed, and then be raised on the third day. So they didn't fully grasp what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ and his messianic plan. So they knew it would be problematic at this point, without really fully knowing what Jesus' plan is, to just blurt out, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. It would have only fueled the pressure, the mounting pressure to make Jesus the people's version of the Messiah. So this strict order from Jesus to the disciples to not say anything should be a wake-up call to us and how we correctly or incorrectly represent Jesus and his teaching. Now, I'm not talking about being able to, uh, to, to thoroughly explain all these complex theological matters to, to, to be the one who can authoritatively say what this rock is, right? I'm not talking about being some apologist, even though I think the Bible says a lot about actually being able to give an answer. But I am asking all of us, when we do speak of Jesus and our faith, does it align with Scripture? When we supposedly proclaim the gospel or speak of the gospel or speak of Jesus, is it the full, pure, true, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ that not only speaks of God's merciful love, but also his just judgment? And when we make known Jesus known to others, are we trusting in his authority and his message? Or are we packaging him nicely in a manner to make him more appealing or palatable? Again, the disciples at this point did not know, fully know, who Jesus was. But we do, as it is fully revealed to us in his word. We do know that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Messiah, but he's also the suffering servant. 
We have the entirety of Scripture. And so for us, that knowledge comes from God. So we have to, we must proclaim Him rightly, to represent Him rightly. I'm assuming by now that most, if not all of you, many of you, I think I can safely assume, have at least seen or been made aware of the He Gets Us campaign. You're going to think, uh-oh, what's he about to say? A few of their commercials were aired during the Super Bowl the last few years. I think the campaign actually started 2022, something like that, in the last few years. Interestingly, there have been praise and criticisms come from all directions. It's been a, a polarizing thing, this campaign. I read into it a little bit. I've heard some things said about it. Some people that, would, that were actually involved in the putting together of the campaign, different advisors and so forth, what they would say about it. It seemed clear that their approach was to pique people's interest about Jesus. To get as many people to be interested through their ads, which would then lead them to their website, which then there's, it's been you know, made available, there are different resources. Like they say there's a, a Bible reading plan. They'll help you find a church and so forth. Um, one of the pastors involved with the project also mentions how the ad was not meant for Christians, but for non-believers, those who reject Christianity. And he calls this campaign a sort of pre-evangelism. If I understand, and if I understand what he means by pre-evangelism, he's getting, it's, it's to say that to get non-believers to the doorstep of evangelism, it's just to get them to the doorstep of evangelism, and then that's supposed to prime them to be open to the gospel. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? It's to, this pre-evangelism, the idea of pre-evangelism, is to get them to a certain place before evangelism, before sharing the gospel. Whole lot that I could, that we could actually all talk about, and we could even talk about it after 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 the service, you know, regarding the ad, the campaign as a whole, the the messaging and the material that they have available on their website, which I also I'll say I, I think is quite problematic. But one of my main concerns with this approach to evangelism, to have pre-evangelism, whatever you want to call it is how much effort goes into making Jesus more appealing. To make him more palatable. Rather than focusing on actually representing who Jesus is rightly and to proclaim the full, pure, unadulterated gospel. And because of the efforts to make Jesus more appealing to the masses, whether this is intentional or not, I'm not the the judge to... I'm not the one to, to judge one's intent because I wouldn't know. But what I think, what, no, not I think, I believe I can rightly judge is that the campaign and the ads have grossly misrepresented the gospel, who Jesus is, and what he teaches us through the scriptures. Where do I get that authority to judge? The scriptures. 
the keys of the keys to the kingdom. If you can take a look at an ad or a commercial and actually say, does this line up with Jesus' teachings and who he is? And I believe the He Gets Us campaign does not do that. And for a campaign that has poured millions and millions of dollars on such a public platform, I believe it's unfortunate how far it seems to be from the Christ it claims to love and serve. You may say, Pastor Nick, Nick, how can you have such criticism towards an effort that, at the end of the day, has brought so much attention to the name of Jesus? Whether you agree or disagree to the method, right? Does it matter that people are talking about Jesus? Because that's what their hope is, is that enough people just talk about Jesus. To that, I would say, to go back to our introduction, don't you care a lot about how you are known? To be known rightly? To be known fully? And how much more important is it then that Jesus, the Son of living God, is known rightly and made known rightly to others? And we so-called Christ followers, disciples, will present our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ rightly according to his own words as it is revealed in the Scriptures. What the campaign does, I believe, it represents Jesus as the Messiah that the people desire. Not the Jesus who is the Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God who came to save a sinful people that are deserving of hell. It portrays Jesus as someone that is of great appeal. He's the Jesus whom the people sought out, that wanted, they wanted him to be their king. People were eager to crown Jesus as their king. As much as we see through these as the name of Jesus, how many times do they mention the cross? As many times as the as and their social media would, would, would say something along the lines of not judging, not hating, how many times do they actually speak of God's judgment? Jesus in own words, to repent and believe. If you really think about it, this approach to evangelism, this method of evangelism, look at Jesus. What happened to this Jesus when he started to say some difficult things? In John 6, we read that many of his disciples no longer walked with him when he, when he talked about him being the, the bread of life. We'll see the trusted disciple, Peter, the rock, rebukes his master. I mean, you want to talk about a rock that was more like a stumbling block than a foundational piece of building Christ's church. We know that every one of his disciples abandoned him. Peter, again, trusted Peter, denies him three times. And Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God, takes that lonely walk up Calvary, alone, carrying the cross to which he was nailed and crucified for the sins of the world. That was his experience of saying some difficult things, true things. 
What makes us think that if we just say Jesus enough, say enough positive things, appealing things about him, make him look good, tickle the ears of the people in the way that they want to hear, that if our portrayal of Jesus is palatable enough, that eventually, eventually, they will repent of their sins and turn from their ways of death, that eventually they will submit to the authority of Christ. Is that what we truly believe? Slapping Jesus on enough of cultural buzzwords is not going to open people's hearts to consider Jesus and his teachings. Just as the true knowledge of Jesus is only revealed by God the Father in heaven, the opening and softening of a lost person's heart, here we talk about the, the divine heart surgery, pre-evangelism, if you want to call it, can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit, not some creative campaign ad. So, closing, Jesus does not need us to make him look good, to make him more appealing or palatable. That's not our job. We shouldn't get in the way. Yes, tone matters. How we actually present the gospel matters. But what really matters is what we present how we present. And what he calls us to is to faithfully present him and his gospel rightly. To say some hard things. To call people to repent and believe. To correctly identify him as the Christ, the Lord, the son of the living God. And I'm there with you. It is tempting to present him in a way that would that will smoothen and soften our message in our evangelism to lessen the offense, if I can say. Let's not forget this gospel of Jesus is offensive. It is an offensive message. And who are we to then try to lessen the offense? It was, you know, I think it was Pastor Mike that preached in 1 Corinthians 2. Talks about the, the aroma of Christ being a fragrance of life to some, those who are saved, but also the stench of death, as, as I think it was Pastor Mike that said, stench of death to those who will perish. So our job is to just be, to, to let others know about Jesus rightly, fully, to present his gospel rightly, fully. And what's more offensive is our attempt to adjust or manipulate the gospel in hopes to increase its appeal. And this type of approach reveals a lack of confidence in God's word and his power to save. He calls us to proclaim the full gospel, to give the bad news that is necessary for the good news, right? To present Jesus and the scriptures rightly. And then we just trust in God's love, his power to save, his perfect plan to build his church. And we trust in that because we know, according to Jesus, that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. We can be confident in our evangelism, evangelism because Jesus himself is the one who builds his church. And it is his power and his word, the kingdom of heaven, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, through the work of the Holy Spirit, 
that the lost will be found and the dead will be raised. Those are his words. So friends, again, brothers and sisters, who do you say he is? 